I'm sorry, we're recording here. Professionals at work. Professionals at work, darling. I know. Professional at work, woman. (laughs) (laughs) You're such a sexist. I started being more insulting towards you. Professional at work, woman. Are we ready? Yeah. It was never the brightest. And you've left the door open. She knows. The microphone is on. She knows. We're recording a trailer here, woman. She knows. (laughs) You're so sexist. No, not in any way. Can we, can we do our third second trailer? Oh, we just leave it like that. That's the trailer. Hey, it's comics every Thursday at tutoryfreaks.com. Yeah. <laughs> Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey, kids, comics! Clark Kent has a job. I just want to go on a date. Faulty metaphor. Kryptonite kills. You're assuming I met the green kryptonite. I was referring, of course, to the red kryptonite, which drains Superman of his powers. Wrong. The gold kryptonite's power sucker. The red kryptonite mutates Superman in some sort of weird... Guys, reality. Besides, I can just tell something's wrong. My spider sense is tingling. Your spider sense? Oh, stay behind and put around in the back cave with crusty old Alfred here. Ah, uh, no, I am no Alfred, so I forget Alfred had a job. But gee, Mr. White, if Clark and Lois could all the good stories, I'll never be a good reporter. Jimmy also jokes here pretty much made me last time. Sorry. Avengers Assemble, let's get it going. Hey, kids, comics! Yeah. Professional mode. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to True True Freaks. So, once again, your weekly... <laughs> Go on, carry on. That was great. <laughs> once again, your weekly introduction to the world of comic books. Uh, today, we'll be looking at uh, Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale's Marvel Blue, uh, published by... Uh, Spider-Man Blue, published by uh, Marvel. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering how long you could keep that up. <laughs> That was very good. I was very impressed. Okay. Very good. Smoke him if you can. Uh, yes, as, as Michael's eloquent introduction, apart from the bit where he trod over his own words, uh, said, this, this is... And I just stumbled over my words. It is, so it makes us equal. It's going well today. Mm-hmm. This is still Hey Kids Comics. If you found us in our new abode, welcome. Sit a spell. Take your shoes off. Admire the new decor. It's very 60s now, isn't it? We've gone further back now. Yeah, we've gone yeah. a bit Mad Men. I like I like the suit. I I like it. Yeah, I I prefer the sixties to the seventies by and large. Hmm. So yes, we have now I like moved. How you're actually looking around as the way yeah, <laughs> we're at. You know, it's, it's all in the acting, darling. No one's going to see you. Nobody's going to see my acting. No. Um, yes, we have moved. We are now on twotruefreaks.com. But nothing else has changed. Everything else is the same. The show still comes out every Thursday. Uh, the difference has been you can now subscribe to individual shows if that is your desire. Uh, the new website was created by Mike Voyles, Kelly Logan, J. David Weeter. It's exceptional. Mm-hmm. It's very easy to use. It's very friendly. Very easy to navigate. I applaud those August gentlemen. With big friendly letters yeah. everywhere. For their, uh, yeah, just like, <laughs> don't panic. Yeah. Just, just, uh, just like the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It's big, got big friendly letters. Go over there and check it out. I mean, obviously, you must have checked it out if you're listening to this episode. But so continue no to check it out. Yeah, uh, they've done all the heavy lifting of uploading all the old episodes, but once they reached a point where they had no old episodes to upload, we had to take over with further old episodes. And Angela, my wife, did most of that. Uh-huh. So by the time you're listening to this, lovely listener, all of our old episodes, season one, two, three, four, and five... 
will be up there for your delectation and delight. Over 100 episodes of two northern idiots blithering about funny books. Anyway, tonight, as Michael said at the top of the show, Spider-Man Blue by Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale. But before that, emails. Yeah, part of the show. Yes, you're the the part of the show, yes, where we throw the door open and let any old fool in. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we send them out in a rush. <laughs> stink the place to up. Tell us what they think. Our first email tonight mm-hmm. is from Ben Rush. I think he's Ben Langan Rush now since he got married. Hi, Ben. Hi, Ben. Well, gents, I'm back. Sorry I'm a week late with this email. I will admit trying to write a comment on the new Constantine book is very hard for reasons I'm going to reveal. I like that he's put Constantine with T-W-E-N. Yeah. That was very clever. Very subtle. Very subtle. I like that. When you sent out the call for comments on this, I was about to go on our honeymoon and was in a happy frame of mind. And since coming back, I'm finding it hard to get back into comics at the moment. Maybe because there's so much crap out there. Now I'm finally going back to reading prose as much left grief. So here I go, while typing this, I'm watching Genesis of the Daleks with the commentary on. It's good Genesis of the Daleks. Is it? Tom Baker, Sarah Jane, Davros. Should I? Do I have the right to wipe out an entire race, even if that race will grow up to be the Daleks? Good one. Very good episode. Anyway, on with Ben's email. Well, the last three issues of Hellblazers were very enjoyable. I too thought that Finn was going to be the vessel for John's soul, so the new 52 could have a young, fit John. You asked about the gun. It is from an earlier story where the evil twin of John is destroyed by John and Gemma after he had raped her on John and Piffy's wedding day. I also don't totally understand the end, but I do like it, as it has been left open, so the Jamie Delano story can still be the true end of John. I love the pub shelves with all the names of the past writers and artists on them. I will agree, Andy, about no created by tag on the new book, but I'm sorry to say it hasn't been there on Hellblazer either. Yeah, but I can understand it, kind of partially-ish not being on Hellblazer. Because it's not been there from the beginning. Now, I'm not arguing right or wrong of that, mm-hmm. but it hasn't been. But if you're going to launch Constantine number one, and my point was more specifically, other books have created by credits on them yeah. that maybe, perhaps, are not necessarily deserved. Nightwing. Yes. Um, whereas you can quite clearly point to the two people that created John Constantine. Okay. But anyway, I think we've beat that horse to death, haven't we? Mm-hmm. Bad horse, bad horse, bad horse, bad horse. Next up is for tomorrow. Any good? <laughs> Very good. <laughs> I like that. Uh, Ben's email continues. Now I will begin the horror show crap. Where do I start? Easy. Something positive. The art. Renato Guedes... I think, is an artist sweatshop I've enjoyed since he did a couple of issues of Superman a while ago, and he seems to be knocking this book out of the park. So I'm in the same problem I have with Justice League Dark. The artist is excellent, but I'd be quite happy if the writer was shot. Oh, Ben, you're you're losing me here, man. There goes the happy. What a steaming pile of shit this is. When did Mr. E become a bad guy? The guy may be insane, but it was for white magic. I see we get a call back to the movie within three pages. I really feel there is nothing new in this story at all, to be honest. It actually felt like they just redid the first issue of Hellblazer. Admittedly, the second issue is slightly better, but still, this is a major letdown. And everything I've come to enjoy about John is dead. But at least Dan can't get my back issues. Yet. Hey, you can if the digital. Well, didn't Mr. E become a bad guy in Neil Gaiman's Books of Magic? I don't remember because it's been a long time since I read the books of magic. Try and 
point blank try to kill Timothy Hunter. Did he? Yeah. Harry Potter. Yeah. By and, and, it, and it wasn't a subtle try to kill him. It was, I'm going to kill you now. Ah, I'm going to kill you now. But I don't like Jeff Lemire being shot. I well, think he's an exceptional writer. Is he good in Justice League Dark? Because I thought Pete Milligan was writing Justice League Dark. He only but, did the first Yeah, but then you told me he only did the first handful of issues and then bailed. So, okay. Mm. And then there's the Trinity War event coming up this summer, laments Ben in his email as it continues. Yes, that is John fighting like a superhero against Wonder Woman. But the worst is yet to come. It's a nice piece of art. Yes. Our John, completely drunk, 50 a day, smoker, sex fiend, is now Captain Feckin' Marvel. And yes, I refuse to call him Shazam. Is this the future, my friends? Send the Daleks to the DC offices right away. I must continue on my lonely journey to get comics. I want to read again, seeing Saga is on a break for a while, but IDW Doctor Who is lots of fun, especially the Prisoners of Time. I just hope for DC's sake Man of Steel is a big winner for them, or I think it could be curtains for certain people. Anyway, gents, I've took enough of your time. Ben, still wishing the Doctor connected the cable, slang and rush. <laughs> but then we'd have no Daleks, Ben! Mm. So I, I do have to disagree, though. What with? With the, the whole Captain Marvel, John Constantine thing. Why? Because essentially, uh, Ben, what you're doing there is you're judging a character or a book or the direction of the character because of a cover. And I disagree with saying that is no good when you're only judging it off a solicited cover. It's not yeah, even out but yet. We've read the first issue now. Well, yeah, but, but do you not think there's something inherently wrong about John Constantine being involved in a superhero crossover event? Well, maybe so, but there's the thing behind it. Captain Marvel is a magic-based hero, so there is. Do you not think there's something inherently wrong about John Constantine being Captain Marvel? He's not Captain Marvel. Is he not? It's a solicited cover. Yeah. It's an enigmatic effect to get the reader to purchase it or to not purchase it. I think we'll be going with the latter. Oh, I'll be buying it. Will you? Yeah, really? With what, what money? <laughs> Your money. <laughs> <laughs> Our next email. I know what you're thinking. And you're right. It's from David Bland. Hello, David. Hello, David. Dear Mike and Andy. Excuse me? Guys. What did you do to get first billing? Apart I, from edit the last three shows. I, I did nothing, but this guy got his priorities. Did he really? I did, yeah. Your first Civil War review was excellent. Oh, thank you very much. We do appreciate that. I wasn't sure about the Civil War episodes. Oh, yeah? I thought I was leaning too far into the negative zone. Have I finished the se- Have I done the second Civil War episode? You should be editing the Civil War episode. At this point, it's done and up. The second one? Yeah. Oh, I'll have to get started on that yes, one. Yeah, that, you, no, no, no. you finished editing it, and it's already gone up as yeah. this goes up. Wait, so the Civil War 1's up by the time we're recording now? Civil War 1 is up. Oh, right, bugger. Civil War 2 goes up on <laughs> next Thursday. I should get that up then. Yeah, you really should get, get to that. I'm revising for my exams. I'd get on with it. You don't do anything all day apart from sleep. Uh, David's email continues ah yes I remember where the nitro tragedy happened here in Connecticut needless to say everyone was pretty bummed about it I didn't really see it on the news that much I mean if Stanford gets blown away then why wasn't it in any of the local media everyone was talking about how Spider-Man revealed his identity and they posted articles everywhere on how they knew Captain America would be assassinated a whole month before it happened wait I think I've stumbled upon a conspiracy the truth must be heard David Bland well, I, 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 I'm glad you enjoyed the Civil War coverage. Mm-hmm. It was it was quite fun to do, wasn't it? It, it yeah. Looking back on it, 
It was fun to edit as well. Was it? Yeah. I'm blue, I'm blue, I'm blue. Yeah, yeah, that was it. I'm blue, I'm blue, I'm blue, I'm blue, which means I can't put that in this show. Well, you could. I'd be a bit repetitive. I was giggling it? to myself. Well, yeah. It's like, ooh. Yeah. Okay, doke. Our final email tonight, Hellblazer, the Omega and the Al- Alpha, if I can speak. Uh, it's from Rob Stubbs. Hello, Andrew and Michael. Hello, Rob. Hello, Rob. There's a man who knows how to start an email. <laughs> Alphabetical. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's the way we roll. <laughs> and even if you put dad, that's still <laughs> alphabetical, isn't it? Although I'm not sure I want people writing in going, dear dad. <laughs> that would just be a little bit confusing. Dear dad, remember that one year you came home drunk? <laughs> <laughs> I'm listening to the start of the Civil War coverage as I write in about the end of the Vertigo era John Constantine and the start of Jay Baywatch Constantine. New 52's five-year timeline version. Once again, a big event book fails completely and falls apart if you look at the starting point and apply just the tiniest bit of common sense to it. However, I will get to all that in my next email I send, unless, of course, I get retconned into a younger, slimmer, more handsome version of myself who goes to New York City to fight against the use of magic because it's bad. All bad. I agree completely with you, Andrew. Words I I never get bored of hearing. (laughs) In that all the people who were all up in arms about the Vertigo version being retired had been actively buying the book and getting their friends to buy the book. It might not have been retired at all. Of course, in the year of the five-year timeline, I think the book would still have been retired anyway, no matter what the sales figures were, based on the history of the people currently in charge. But that's just my personal view. Yeah, it's... If Vertigo is going the way of the dodo... Mm-hmm. which many people suspect that it is. Because they've only really got fables at the minute, haven't they, that's, that's selling anything. Yeah. Then Constantine would probably have ended up in New 52 anyway. There's, there's more filthy lucre to be made with him in the New 52 as younger and sexier and hipper, isn't there? Rob's email continues, JC is a thoughtless with a casual disregard for what the consequences of his actions will be for other people, which is clearly shown in the first issue. I'm not going to say he's immoral, because generally speaking he has some sort of guidelines by which he lives his life, but it's always through, how does this affect me? He didn't consider the fact that while he may be unkillable until the appointed time of his death, according to fate, there's lots of ways he can be messed up that doesn't mean death until after he jumps on the train tracks and kills a bunch of innocent people just to show off. I'm at a disadvantage here, as I don't have the actual issues in front of me to look at, but in listening I predicted before it happened that JC's end would be a result of his bride's father doing the will no one rid me of this troublesome priest in front of the wrong people. It is ironic that in all of the enemies JC has made, his death is the result of his marriage and his father-in-law. Curless words, not some demon or supernatural event. It's entirely in keeping with the low-key nature of the book, however. People who know for certain the end is near act just like JC does in doing all of the things that they never had time for before to create memories memories in the minds of the people they're going to leave behind. Of course it's going to be bitter though, but at least, even though the memories might be bitter, they will still exist, which is the point. As I think about whether or not she should take revenge, I'm reminded of the Justice League two-part episode of The Enemy Below, where Arthur and Orm are having their final battle with Orm winding up hanging off this broken ice cliff. Orm has tried to kill his brother twice, his son once, stolen his kingdom and unleashed a doomsday weapon to destroy the surface world. Arthur looks down at his pleading brother and reaches out with his good hand because he had to chop the other off to escape the manacle that was holding him to a fallen cliff as he and his son were falling down to an undersea volcano. Arthur picks up his trident and says, I believe this is mine, as he watches his brother fall to his death. I think it's entirely appropriate that Epiphany blew the idiot's head off, even though it doesn't make her feel better. Yeah, I wasn't... I don't think I was arguing that, you know, she shouldn't have done it. I think it was more a case of I was shocked that she did do it. Because we're so... 
used, we're used to, to people not doing it. Yeah, you're doing used the to right thing. Characters having a moral compass and going, "No, this is murder. I will not do this." And the father just blew his face off. Yeah. Was genuinely a shocking moment in the story, as opposed to shock value, which are two completely different things. Of course, JC is trying to cheat fate, Rob continues, and comes back to life but realises that if he keeps trying to escape, it will wind up killing Epiphany, which is too much for him to bear. I don't think he's trying to be selfless, though, but he doesn't want it to be his fault. She dies. So it's entirely consistent with his own character of being a selfish bastard, even in that. I like the fact he tells his snot-nosed adopted nephew to go back to his family to stop trying to emulate his uncle's life path. JC's selfless act is giving at least one person in his life a personal choice to make, instead of just deciding what he wants to be done and doing it. Like Epiphany, Gemma chooses the darker path that ends her uncle's life. Of course, we have this wonderful scene at the end with JC in a pub, which is fitting. I loved the epic rant about Mr. Five-Year Timeline and and agree completely. You have creative teams just quitting and new people being put in. You have management deciding storylines, micromanaging the talent, which creates crappy product. You have talent who can't get product out on time. You have this fundamental misunderstanding of why certain stories sell, mistaking body counts as the reason, instead of characters who resonate with the readers dying in some necessary storyline that advances the other characters. This fundamental transformation of a man who lives an independent life, doing what he wants, when he wants, where he wants, into a younger, better-looking man who stole his image in mannerisms from someone else, who talks about magic is bad and there's always a price, misses the mark entirely. By the way, did you know magic is bad and always has a horrible cost, no matter how good it might seem? Uh, I was not aware of that, Rob, until Constantine won't beat me over the head with it. Oh, yeah, men like them, they're cheaters. Yes, they cheat. They do. Mm. It'll come back to bite them. My friend, continues Rob, who shall remain nameless, wanted to get into the new DC-52 because she figures a good jumping on point. She forced me to go through the various issues she intended to buy the first six issues of everything, coming out, cutting out all the books she and I both decided needed to be cut, then making another cut, four issues at, and then the final cut at issue 12. At issue 4, we mutually decided that certain books weren't worth it, as she didn't like them at all, and I agreed with her view for the most part. Some of the books she liked got cancelled anyway, but the entire project was done much sooner than either of us expected. I'm not sure that she knew magic is bad, and always has a horrible price to it, no matter how good it may seem at the time. If we had started this project later, and this was one of the books on the list, it probably would have ended up that issue 4 cut-off. She's reading Supergirl Earth 2, World's Finest, Batman, Birds of Prey, which is her favourite, and Demon Knight. Um, of them, I'm only reading Earth 2, World's Finest, and Batman. Mm-hmm. I still highly recommend uh, Animal Land and the first 18 issues of something. I know you do. Just trying to get everyone to read them, because they are very, very good. Earth 2 and World's Finest are very good. Mm. I've been quite impressed with them. Well, I'm off my UK and associates to time travel to work on my next email, as I'm certainly not writing two emails right after each other, as far as you know. P.S. I just wanted to make certain you both knew magic is bad, and always had a horrible cost, no matter how good it might seem at the time. (laughs) Again, wasn't aware of it until Constantine won. Beat me over the head with it. (laughs) R.L. Stubbs Jr. Thank you very much, Rob. It's always nice to hear from you. And that's it. The email bag this week is empty. I am terribly saddened by my empty sack. You had to, didn't you? The post bag, dude! We don't have a post bag. I don't know. Our virtual post bag. (laughs) Anyway, with all the emails dispensed with, it is time to move on to the main event. But first... A short commercial break, plugging a beloved podcasting companion's show. We'll be right back. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this 
are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hey, you. Yes, you. Hearing this message. Do you like podcasts? Well, evidently you do, because you're listening to one right now. Do you like giant monsters? Of course you do. Who doesn't like giant monsters? Well, then have I got the show for you. Earth Destruction Directive is the newest Daikaiju podcast on the internet. And we talk about all your old favorites, like Godzilla, Rodan, King Ghidorah, and Gamera. But also lesser-known monsters, like Yappa, Yangari, and Giawa. We cover everything from movies to comic books to video games, and we're kicking it old school at earthdestructiondirective.blogspot.com. Check it out, won't you? And remember, the EDD has got their eyes on you! 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 Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible. We are back. Yes, we are. From that lovely little commercial break. Spider-Man Blue. I'm blue, I'm blue, I'm blue. I said we wouldn't play that. No, but we're going to anyway. Okay. Spider-Man Blue was the second of the Colors trilogy, published by Marvel. The first being Daredevil Yellow in 2002, and the final one being Hulk Grey in 2004. All but one of the miniseries produced in this series took place in, or depicted via flashbacks or other narrative devices, the early days of the respective heroes, and all three benefited from the benefit of hindsight and the ability to tie them into current events in a way the original creators, who were by and large making it up as they went along, could not. All three shed light on the characters in a different way, and all three were created by the same creative team. Writer Jeff Loeb and artist Tim Sale. Love and Sale first teamed up in 1992 for the DC Comics reworking of Challenges of the Unknown and followed this up with three Halloween special issues of Legends of the Dark Knight, which were collected as Haunted Nights. They then looked at Batman's early days in The Long Halloween, which wove its narrative around the iconic Batman Year One. They followed this with a look at Robin's early days in Batman Dark Victory and then Superman's early days in Superman for All Seasons, which, as you might imagine, seems to imply they would be rather adept at tackling the burgeoning careers of superheroes. At the top of this introduction I said all but one of the series took place in the early days and what is most notable about Spider-Man Blue is it doesn't take place in the first blush of herodom for Peter Parker, aka our friendly neighbourhood Spider-Man. Rather it takes place three or so years into his career, concentrating as it does on events originally depicted in Amazing Spider-Man issues 39 through 49, published between August 1966 and June of 1967. You see, back in those halcyon days of yore, Stan Lee, co-creator, writer and editor of the Spider-Man strip, set out Marvel's stall as being different from the distinguished competition by ageing the characters and subsequently aged Spider-Man pretty much in real time, from his debut in Amazing Fantasy number 15 in late 1962 to the late 60s, making Peter around 19 at the time of these stories. The narration for the series is also unusual in that it's a first-person narrative of Peter addressing Gwen directly, a narrative device that is actually very effective, as once the reader realises this, it becomes apparent that this is one way Peter deals with Gwen's ultimate fate. Loeb elected this time period for two reasons. 
One, Spider-Man's early days had been retold and or rebooted relatively recently in Marvel history with John Byrne's ill-fated Spider-Man Chapter One and the reimagined take on Spider-Man over in the Ultimate Universe by Bendis and Mark Bagley. And two, this story would be about two epoch-making events in Peter's life. His meeting of Murray Jane Watson, the woman who would be his wife, and Gwen Stacy, his first true love. Gwendolyn, Gwen Stacy, first appeared in Amazing Spider-Man issue 31, published December 1961, where she is described by Harry Osborn as the ex-beauty queen of Standard High. She's instantly smitten with Peter, whom she describes as brilliant and very attractive. Peter was filling out at this point. All the exercise he got as Spider-Man must have been agreeing with him and tried to get him to notice her. Peter, far too preoccupied with starting college and his Aunt May, who was at death's door in this storyline, gives her the cold shoulder and she becomes rather abrasive and a bit of a cold fish towards Peter, flirting instead with jock idiot Flash Thompson. She still has feelings for Peter, however, and slowly, over the next few months, Peter starts noticing her as well. This was also a chance for Loeb Sale to pay overdue homage to the other man in Spider-Man's life, John Romita Sr., Along with Lee, Steve Ditko gets the lion's share of the credit for Spider-Man's enduring popularity, and rightfully so, but Romita did something remarkable with Spider-Man, taking the character so readily identified as a Ditko creation in how he looked and moved, and made him his own. He's also responsible for making the character even more popular, in part aided by the 1960s cartoon show, and many of the things we associated with Spider-Man to this day happened under Romita. With the era chosen, Loeb and Sale started work on the six-issue miniseries which was released in single-issue format between May 2002 and February 2003. Our copy of this is the absolutely lovely hardcover edition published in April 2003. Marvel were actually pretty good at giving decent storylines the grandiose treatment in these hardcovers, and this one is no exception. It has a gorgeous dust jacket illustration of Spider-Man swinging from left to right, and a beautiful sketch of Gwen in the background. The cover is all powder blue, except for the red of Spider-Man's costume, whilst the back cover features Sale's version of Gwen dancing, which is a homage, redrawing, of a similar John Romita piece from Amazing Spider-Man 47, page 10, panel 4. The inside is equally well designed, with an introduction from John Romita, the original artist on the stories this series retells, and commentary and sketches from Tim Sale and Jeff Loeb on the creation of the series, and ideas that were rejected and why. It's a wonderful hardcover, and to make it even better, my copy is signed by Tim Sale. Mm-hmm. Which is just awesome. It is. Because we met him at Thought Bubble, we did. And we got sketches. We would have, but he was only doing about 10, wasn't he? Well, that and he was doing, what, 150 pounds per sketch? Were they? Yep. My God. They were big pieces, though. And they were huge sketches, but 150 quid, that's a lot of money, isn't it? Probably worth it to have a Tim oh, Sale original. Yeah. The titles of these series were long debated as regards their significance. Whilst blue is, of course, a colour, it can also mean depressed, dismal, aristocratic, puritanical and even risque. In the case of this storyline, it probably just means down, but Gwen's ultimate fate could be said to come out of the blue. So, Daredevil Yellow, where does that get its colour from? I don't know, because I've not read Daredevil Yellow in ages, but having read this... I'm considering doing Daredevil Yellow. Well, it comes from that it was his yellow costume and how he's red on. That's as simple as that. Yep. So it doesn't mean yellow as in coward. It could be. Nobody calls me yellow. But where does Hulk Grey come from? Because his skin was coloured grey at that point. Yeah, genius. <laughs> that's it. Yep. 
So everyone looked into these titles for meaning and significance and deeper levels of consciousness. And the I, I, I looked at the characters and gone. Oh, he's Why? got grey skin. <laughs> Genius. Book one, my funny Valentine, has a wonderful cover. Spider-Man is being all Spider-Man-esque, falling to the floor, whilst Norman Osborn, coloured in green, is in the background. The best part of the cover is the shadowy background that takes the form of the grim visage of the green goblet, which blends into a series of webs. Quite, quite wonderful. Unless you disagree with me. No, no, it's a good cover. I prefer the one with the, the ones with Gwen and Mary Jane on them. That's because you're a teenage boy and no, they are pretty girls. That's because they're the Tim Sale. <laughs> and the story is about the girls in his life, so... Yeah. Norman Osborn's in it for, what, three pages? I like seeing Norman Osborn, though. I always get a kick out of Norman, especially his freaky her. His yeah. mutant her that he passed on to his son. How do you get her like that? I don't Do you have to know. shave every line individually? I have no idea how that happens. Get a felt-tip pen and colour in what you've just shaved. It's good her, though. Yeah. I would like it. <laughs> would you? Yeah. It's better than what I've got. The story for issue one. On Valentine's Day, Spider-Man deposits a single red rose on top of the Brooklyn Bridge to remember the night Gwen Stacy died. And he remembers. He remembers the night Norman Osborn discovered that he was Peter Parker and revealed that he was the Green Goblin. He remembers the fight that followed and Norman forgetting it all. He remembers saving Norman Osborn and burying the Green Goblin forever. After a brief conversation with Harry Osborn after Norman is taken to the hospital, Peter drops by the motorcycle shop to pick up the bike he's had his eye on for a while and ends up taking Gwen for a spin. Later at May's house, Mary Jane, May's friend's niece, whom she's been trying to set up with Peter for ages, drops by, missing Peter again by mere minutes. Funny Valentine Sweet coming Valentine, you make me smile with my heart. Um, it's quite a short synopsis, that, isn't it? It is. It's not really a lot in each individual uh. issue, so. And also, I wanted to cover all six issues in one show. Yeah. So, it didn't really feel like a two part of this episode, did it? this comic. Uh, the pages are not numbered because these are modern comics and I presume they didn't know that people like us would want to direct people to the page we were talking about but it would be easy to talk about how this is an art book and not actually a comic book. Easy but churlish as the art in this is gorgeous and lovely listener I apologise but you're going to hear this a lot over the next 90 minutes or so. Sales art has always had a gritty realism to it even when he drew Superman that grounds it in reality. In fact, Loeb has said that the fact that Sale draws ugly people is what drew him to Tim Sale. In this respect, Sale shows a lot in common with original Spider-Man artist Steve Ditko, who didn't draw matinee idols in his strips. The people in the Vox pop scenes with the denizens of New York would diss Spider-Man always featured real people. The supporting characters looked real, even if they were good-looking like Liz or handsome like Flash. They looked like real good-looking people and not like Hollywood mannequins. But Sale is not drawing Ditko's skinny, gangly Spider-Man here. He's drawing Ramita's older, slightly beefier, more confident Spider-Man. And the first page, dedicated to Stan Lee, Steve Ditko and John Ramita, is set in the present day. The colouring on the splash is all in nighttime blues and exceptionally evocative. 
Spider-Man swings to the bridge, and as always, we wonder how he can swing to someone when there are no buildings. A question answered on the very next, equally gorgeous, two-page spread, where we see Spider-Man's web attached to a passing helicopter. These little moments where attention to detail is so effective are why Sale is such a good fit for Spider-Man, and why it's odd he's not done more of him. Each issue would follow this template of a splash and a two-page splash. That two-page splash of him approaching the bridge is just phenomenal. Mm-hmm. I love the nighttime colouring on this. We didn't mention Steve Boccoletto did the colouring. Yeah. And he does an exceptionally good job with it, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. It's really the nighttime scenes that open the book. It's especially effective that it's all dark blues because it's night and there's no lights around. But the rose is coloured red. Which is kind of um, like Schindler's List, isn't it? Yeah. Where the girl's coat is red in an otherwise black and white movie. Excellent, excellent, excellent work from Mr. Sale. Likewise, the titles are all popular songs. My Funny Valentine is a jazz standard written in 1937 and appearing in the Rogers and Hart musical Babes in Arms. Because I know my musicals. Do you actually? No, I researched that. Awesome. <laughs> um, Gwen for those not in the know, was killed by the Green Goblin in Amazing Spider-Man 121 in June of 1973. And there was some controversy over which bridge she was thrown off. The dialogue, says the George Washington Bridge, the images drawn by Gil Kane, suggested the Brooklyn Bridge. Sale comes down firmly on the side of the Brooklyn Bridge. That I did look up. Did you? Yes, because I wanted to know what the difference between the two bridges was, not being a New Yorker and all. No, I can tell which bridge that was. They, they are significantly different. Yeah. So it is one of those things that if Gil Kane drew the Brooklyn Bridge, why did Roy Thomas... No, it wasn't Roy Thomas, wasn't it? It was Jerry Conway. Mm-hmm. Why did Jerry Conway, who wrote the issue, not look and go, that's not the George Washington Bridge, I need to change the dialogue? Um, I don't know. Did the art come first? Well, the, if they were working Marvel method... The way it will have worked is he will have given the plot to Gil Kane. Gil Kane will have drawn the issue and give it back to Jerry Conway to dialogue. Mm. So I, I have often wondered where that discrepancy came from. If it was in the script that it was the George Washington Bridge and Gil Kane drew Brooklyn by mistake, yeah. then surely it was up to Jerry Conway to receive the art back and go, all right, well, I'll just change the dialogue. Because it's surely easier to change the dialogue than to change the art. Mm. That would have made more sense. So did somebody look at it and go, it's Brooklyn Bridge, I don't care, I'm still writing the dialogue as if it's George Washington. People will not notice. And you're like, people will, dude. They're two completely different bridges. I may not notice. I live in Podunk, Manchester. (laughs) But people who live in America would probably notice that the Brooklyn Bridge and the George Washington Bridge were different. Maybe maybe no one was thinking, wait, that's the wrong bridge. And we're thinking, oh, get in there, spider. No, something like that would stick out, I think. To you, maybe. Yeah, it will. It's, if you're familiar enough with an area, like Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. You ever seen Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves? No. Superman's dad plays Robin Hood. Right. As opposed to Robin Hood, where Superman's dad plays Robin Hood. Russell Crowe and Kevin Costner. Right, okay. Both play Superman's dad in the new Superman movie. Which one are we on about? The one We're on about the one with Kevin Costner. Right, okay. Okay. He lands at the White Cliffs of Dover, right? Right. He walks to Sherwood Forest. Those are some good legs. That's that's an exceptionally good distance to walk in such a short amount of time. Well, it's like American Vampire in London, where he goes... American Werewolf in London, where he gets tacked on the moors in Yorkshire and ends up in a a hospital in London. Yeah, yeah. and then they they go back to Yorkshire and back to London for a day, yeah. Yeah, so you see, when you know somewhere, something like that sticks out. Yeah. So I'm sure that would have stuck out to the readers of the time. 
I could be wrong. Maybe maybe it was just a mistake and everyone accepted it. <laughs> I know, I'm psychoanalysing it for yeah, no yeah. readily explained reason. See, Other than we make a show the about... The artist must be in, the, in this frame comics. of mind. But obviously the artist was sat overlooking the bridge and that's why he drew it. Now, of course, this was followed by an argument on both parts, and so... And Gil Kane may not have been a New Yorker, and it's entirely possible his photo reference was wrong. Yeah. Well, that still doesn't explain why somebody didn't go, well, let's just change the dialogue. Mm. That would have made more sense. But anyway, we, we can't correct a 40-year-old comic book <laughs> mistake, can well, we? But we can try. But we can certainly try, yes. Uh, conveniently avoiding what Murray Jane thinks of Spider-Man dropping a rose off at the Brooklyn Bridge on Valentine's Day every year, Spidey mentions that he's never told anyone that he does this. Murray Jane would probably be a bit pissed off if she was written like a real woman. Well, there's that, and Peter also says he doesn't feel like being anyone's Valentine this year. So not only does he, he focus his attention on his dead ex-girlfriend mm. every year, but he doesn't want to spend time with his wife. Yeah, I asked. I asked for a female opinion on that. Did you? Yeah. Did you ask I just asked your mum. Oh, that seemed pretty these. I didn't go and randomly stop somebody in the street and say, "You're a girl." What would you think if your husband went and put a rose at the place where his ex-girlfriend died? No, I didn't do that. I just asked your mum. And I had to go into the whole detail of how the Gwen Murray Jane Peter Parker relationship was completely different in the comics from the films. Right. Which she did actually say sounds much more interesting in the comics hmm. than it did in the movies. But she did say she would probably be quite upset with him if she knew he did this. Yeah. And then later on, when we get to the end, we'll talk about that later. But I asked her about later the ending on, as well. When we get to the end, yeah. yeah. And she's cool with it. Yeah. And she was like, on the one hand, Murray Jane lost a friend as well. But on the other, it certainly does seem to Mary Jane that Peter has never gotten over Gwen's death. So certainly there must be something in the back of their head. Is, is she sloppy seconds? Yeah. That's just my interpretation. I mean, Mary Jane may just be a much nicer person than, than we are. Mm. Which is perfectly understandable. Uh, the flashbacks that represent the core of the story kick in here and don't end until the last few pages of the final issue. Essentially what Loeb Sale are doing here is Spider-Man Year 3 skipping over Spider-Man Year 2, which has never been retold in comics and neatly avoiding referencing John Byrne's controversial Chapter 1, which retold the first 18 months of Spider-Man's career. It has to be said that the splash page of The Green Goblin's Face by Tim Sale is gorgeous. Mm. Um, apparently, when they made the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie, they did make a comics-authentic Green Goblin costume that actually looked okay, Yeah, but they rejected it in favour of the Power Ranger version. Fair enough. You but, know, I, 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 I just found out why Norman Osborn has hair like that. Why? Because it mimics the Green Goblin mask. It does. That is a nice little visual cue that he's the Green Goblin. Yeah. That's actually quite clever. I wonder if Ditko meant that. Don't know. Could have. Hmm. Yeah, he could have done. Yeah, that's actually quite good. But anyway, you were saying they rejected the mask. They the rejected Ranger. the costume for the Power Ranger one, which doesn't work as well. I've made me peace with it over the ten years that the movie's been out. Because mm -hmm. the first Spider-Man movie is still my favourite one. Um, uh, yeah. What's wrong with the first Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie, dude? There's not much wrong with it, but there's not much great about it. Yeah, it's really good, the first one. The second one's the best. You think? Yeah. See, I'm, I'm a bit... No, I don't that's, dislike. That's, I think the second one's the good. proper Spider-Man movie. It's, he's still not funny enough, is he? I guess, but it's it's the downer movie. No, the third one's <laughs> the downer it's movie. Like, it's like the Empire Strikes Back of the Spider-Man films. But it, nobody dies. 
Well, yeah, but it represents the Spider-Man character. He's always... He's, he's, yeah, he's saving the day, but... But he ends that film with getting the girl. Hollywood movie ending. <laughs> yeah, all right. If I'd written that film, everyone dies. Well, if I'd have written that film, I'd have written the first one and I'd have done it completely different. Sadness but, everywhere. But that's just me. Doom and gloom. Yeah, but that's because you're a teenager. <laughs> uh, the next ten pages... Tell, retell, sorry, Amazing Spider-Man issue 40 in which Norman discovered who Spider-Man really was and captured him and then spent lots of panels monologuing. Sale and Loeb paced this retelling perfectly, capturing Spidey's trademark wit and the kinetic energy of the fight scene and more importantly the feel of the original whilst not being slavish to it. Spidey's dialogue is hysterical in places and includes a reference to the 60s TV show theme but Loeb's internal monologue for Peter would make it quite clear that this is a fight to the death. Whether Spider-Man would have killed here is open to debate, and Peter even references if he could have known the future, would he have killed Norman here? It's an interesting moral question handled very well. Yes. You think he would have done? Killed him on the spot. If he'd have known what would ultimately happen to Gwen at the hands of this man, do you think he would have killed him here? Yes. Do you? Yes. Because that's what you would have done, or because that's what Peter would have done? Because that's... The, the, the direction this book took, mm. I, and especially by the end of the book, Peter is in that frame of mind that he would have. You think? Yeah. Okay. Because obviously he never got over it, so there is that... There is a, a definite large amount of sadness, though. That by killing, uh, taking a life earlier on, he could have saved somebody he loved later. Yeah. So is that not very similar thematically to his actual origin. Although the, he didn't kill the burglar, if he'd stopped the burglar, the burglar wouldn't have killed his Uncle Ben. Yes. So thematically they're playing with the same idea. If he could have stopped the Green Goblin here, had he been able to see the future, mm. would he have done? And would he have done it in a permanent manner? I, I reckon he would have. Okay, fair enough. Interesting, though, because I'd never noticed those two thematic similarities till you just mentioned them. Hmm? Very good. I knew I had you on the show for a reason. <laughs> um, Peter visiting Harriet is a nice moment that deepens their relationship by having them bond over the fact that neither has a mother. And mother. 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 <laughs> I'm just leaving that in. And Peter has also lost a father. It works in that it establishes that Peter and Harry have a lot more in common than originally thought, and why Peter and Harry would move in together later. It also lets Peter into the gang a little more, when originally Harry and Flash wouldn't give him the time of day. It does also show how hindsight can play into the retellings. In the original text, Peter and Harry just kind of become friends out of nowhere, whereas here, this one scene sets up a friendship. Granted, Peter doesn't mention that he's at the hospital to get a picture of Norman for the Daily Bugle. No. But, hey, Peter's got to earn a living. Mm-hmm. He doesn't actually take the photo. Though. He doesn't actually take the photo, no. Which I was fine with, because I did think that would have seemed a little bit mercenary of him. Yeah. After he's just had this heart-to-heart with Harry. Because I got... When he shows up and goes in the room, he didn't expect Harry to be in Norman's room. So he panics a little. In, yeah, the and from the dialogue you get, Harry? And he's, Parker, what are you doing here? And Peter covers, and he goes, I, I, I heard about your dad. Yeah. And then they have this little heart-to-heart. Mm. And it had Peter then ended that by going, so can I take a photo of him? <laughs> kind of would have undercut it, wouldn't it? Yeah. Because if you do look at the artwork, 
when Peter walks away at the end, he's kind of hiding the fact that he's got his camera with him. Mm. Which I thought was, again... Even though he has little. it dangling out. Well, if you have a look there, in the scenes of earlier on, he's kind of just moves it around. Mm. I mean, he could just be carrying his camera around with him. Norman Peter. So a photographer. Norman he's Peter. With his camera, he's he eats with, with his camera, camera yeah. <laughs> I'm glad I'm a writer. <laughs> um, speaking of which, Harry quotes Superman the movie. Yeah. Is that an actual Superman the movie quote? I guess this is what they mean when they say the son becomes the father and the father becomes the son. Superman the movie. Is that not just a saying, though? It may be, but I got that he's quoting <laughs> Superman the movie. That's what I got from it. Fair enough. Okay. <laughs> um, it's. I thought it was interesting how Tim Sale interpreted Gwen in his art compared to Romita and later how he interprets Mary Jane. Gwen on this page... Uh, the gang, God, I hate the word, the gang, <laughs> show up at the hospital to visit um, Norman. And there's a token guy that we don't know about and never meet and never <laughs> yeah. talk about and don't care about, along with Flash and Gwen. And Sale's depiction of Gwen is that she's an almost pixie-ish cuteness to her. She's all button nose and pointy chin rather than drop-dead gorgeous. There's also a heavy implication that Gwen is an academic. She's always seen in this book carrying a book or studying. Here, it's advanced calculus. Gwen's ubiquitous headband is already in place here mm. as well. I like his Gwen. I like, I like his art. I'm, his art's just fantastic yeah. all the way through. Who do you prefer, his Gwen or his Mary Jane? His Gwen. Do you why? I'm not so fond of his Mary Jane. Why not? don't know. There's just something about it. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Um, Peter then goes to buy his bicycle. He pulls up in front of the gang, showering Flash with dirt, which is probably something he's wanted to do for years. Mm -hmm. Which was a lovely little scene, because Flash is like, Watch it, jerk! And then it's Peter. And you need training wheels with that thing, Parker? And Pete just ignores it, because Peter's got absolutely no interest in Flash whatsoever at this point. How does he know how to ride a bike? A motorbike? Dad <laughs> was never, never meant. He just does. The, the, um... He's showing off to Gwen, so his instinct is telling him how to ride a bike. Yeah, his spider sense. <laughs> you fall off this and you're losing ride this girl, a bike. Parker. Yeah, that, that works. I'll buy yeah. that. Because presumably he must have had to study and get a licence. Yeah. So uh, did he do all that off, off panel? Off panel, yeah, yeah. That was just never mentioned in the comics. He just bought a bike. Yeah. Because in the comics he does, he just buys a bike. Has this become the spider bike? No, it's just Peter Parker's bike. It's not a spider bike. Hey, does Spider-Man have a license to drive the Spider-Bugger? No, because it's it was my understanding that at that point Spider-Man couldn't drive. Yeah, because This was something everywhere. Straczynski would forget this when he was writing Spider-Man and Spider-Man could drive, Peter Parker could. Right. Because his argument was, well, he drove the Spider-Mobile so he must be able to drive. But being able to drive doesn't mean he has a license. Yeah. They're not going to card Spider-Man. <laughs> and Peter Parker, as, as I'm sure it's mentioned in an issue somewhere... God, I forget where, but I'm sure it's mentioned somewhere that living in New York and being able to swing, he never bothered learning how to drive. Fair enough. So I always thought that was a continuity goof from the Straczynski issues. Another continuity Yeah, if, if there is a lovely listener out there who knows better and can point to me to an issue of Spider-Man where he did learn to drive. A six-issue miniseries. Six-issue miniseries. Spider-Man learns to drive. Spider-Man training wheels. <laughs> Take a left here. Oh, God, no. Do not pitch that to Bendis. <laughs> please. 
Um, an exceptionally good introduction to the series. The art is gorgeous, but to be honest, Loeb's writing is just as good. He's very economical with his words, and yet able to pack so much punch into the few words he does use, conveying the emotion of the moment so perfectly. There's a lot of ground covered from the original comics, which belies the feeling this is a series of huge panels and little else. But all told, this is as good as comics get. Mm. I thought this was fantastic. Absolutely brilliant. Absolutely loved it. Um, Continuity and nitpicks! Which is a section that we're going to do throughout this entire six-issue series. Mm Mm-hmm. The continuity and nitpick section is not in any way me dissing on this story, which I think is excellent. Rather, simply for fun, pointing out... Yeah, for fun. We're comics fans, dude. You do this every time we talk about this story. Yeah, just for fun, I'm pointing out where Loeb and Sill deviate from the original text. Because we wouldn't be a proper comics fan if we didn't nitpick. Would we? True. So... Um, Loeb does have a massive get-out-of-jail-free card in this, in that these are Peter's recollections of events, rather than the way they were. Mm. And, you know, memory cheats as you get older, so it's perfectly possible Peter is re- people. Peter, sorry, is remembering these events differently than they actually happened. His memories are like JPEGs. Yes. In what you think way? about them, the more they deteriorate. Deteriorate. Why does a JPEG deteriorate if I think about it? Well, no, when you open a JPEG, yeah. the more you open it, say if you like, look at a JPEG yeah. twice yeah. every day for 50 years, then the clarity will deteriorate. Will it really? That's a fact. Is it real? Yeah. <laughs> Where did you make that up from? I didn't make it up, I read it uh, on the internet the other day. So it must be true. Oh, yeah. Okay, fair enough. Um, this retelling of Spidey Saves the Day from Amazing Spider-Man 40, September 1966, picks up at page 11 of the original and tells exactly the same tale differently. In both versions, the Green Goblin's ego won't let him believe Spider-Man was capable of breaking free of his bonds himself, and in both versions, the fight is quite kinetic and unrelenting. Neither Lee nor Loeb goes down the unnecessarily violent route like Miller did in Civil War, but both are fights to the finish. The dialogue is completely different, but that does not change the tone of the piece, but the main difference is in the resolution. In the Lee Remeter text, Spider-Man kicks the goblin into the machine that causes his amnesia. Although the dialogue makes it seem like an accident, this seems more like a sock to the comics code. Whereas in the Sale Loeb redo, the goblin holds a pumpkin bomb at Spider-Man that he deflects back at the goblin, making it the goblin's own fault. Maybe that's how Peter remembers things. He can't handle him doing anything negative, so he always makes himself be the hero. Fair enough. I can I can go with that. Uh, the Peter buys a bike subplot is completely different here than in the original version. By and large, this all took place in Amazing Spider-Man 41 from October of 1966, where he calls Jonah and gets him to vouch for the loan. Jonah does it simply to make Peter in his debt. In this retelling, Jonah agrees to pay Peter in cash up front if he can get a picture of Norman Osborn in Memorial Hospital. But, as we mentioned above, there's no indication Peter actually goes through with that. Aunt May does give him some cash towards it, so maybe that covered the deposit. The biker in blue is every bit the stereotypical biker type from every Hells Angels biker movie you've ever seen. He's burly, tattooed and hurry, whereas the guy in the original is a button-down, suit-wearing type. I presume you didn't bother reading the original issues for that. Uh, I read, um... The Green Goblin ones. Did you? Yes, I For did. this? When you got it for your birthday. Oh, right. I looked okay. through it, and I was like, well, I've never actually read this. They're so awesome. I read that two-part story. Is it Spider-Man 39 and 40? Yeah. 
Awesome, and awesome that's what, stuff. That's why I made the little mini-mates the way I did. Yeah, <laughs> he's got his little Spider-Man mini-mate on your bookshelf yeah. with the Green Goblin pulling him behind. I then found out that they would release that version anyway, so... Yeah, but you made your own, which, is, which is far more, more far cooler, I think. Mm-hmm. In the original, Gwen seems a little disappointed by Peter owning a bike, whereas here she's positively excited by it, and Peter takes her for a ride. Originally, it was Murray Jane in Amazing Spider-Man 44, December 1966, that was the first girl to ride with Peter. Metaphorically. <laughs> of course. I, I don't know if that's, you know, physically. Interestingly, Loeb and Sales skip the Betty Brandt subplot completely. Maybe they thought having another girl that Peter was interested in would muddy the waters. Not for Peter, it wouldn't. No, no, Peter. <laughs> Peter's probably quite down with the threesome. Or quartet, as the case may be. Mm-hmm. Book two, entitled Let's Fall in Love, has a cover that shows what the trade dress for the series will be. Spider-Man swings whilst a figure is in the background, in this case, Gwen. It's also well-coloured, this time all in yellows. Lovely, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, if I have a complaint, it's that Spider-Man looks a bit... His chest is pointed. Yeah, he, I was just going to say angular was the word I was looking for. But it's, you know, it doesn't suck. These are my favourite covers. Which one? The Gwen's and Mary Jane ones? Yeah. Yes. And then we get one with Aunt May on it. Yeah. So <laughs> no, they, they rejected the Aunt May one. Did they? They talk about that in the the, pa- in the thing at the back. Right. Tim Sale wanted to do an Aunt May one and Jeff Loeb said, Don't be an idiot! <laughs> Yeah. Spidey checks out the Daily Bugle's reports of the Green Goblin's death, photos by one P. Parker, before heading off to college and being completely oblivious to another shadowy figure checking out the same report. At Empire State University, Gwen and Peter are getting along famously, so of course Flash Thompson has to ruin it. Elsewhere, the shadowy figure lets the rhino loose from his cell, bellowing for Spider-Man. Peter, eager for cash to date Gwen, pay for his bike and pick up some college materials, dutifully obliges and buries the rhino under a building. He snags a piece of the rhino's hide and takes it to Dr. Kurt Connors for analysis. Connors determines its chemical composition and with Spider-Man's help produces a polymer that, when used in conjunction with Spider-Man's webbing, will melt the rhino's costume off his body. Connors is concerned that the chemicals are the same that turned him into the lizard, but disregards it for the greater good and the chemicals work perfectly. At home, Peter readies himself for his date, completely forgetting this is the night Aunt May has arranged to set him up with Anna Watson's niece, Murray Jane. Peter feels this should only be a minute, and he can make his way to Gwen, but when he opens the door, the red-headed, green-eyed, vivacious Murray Jane Watson informs Peter that he's just hit the jackpot. Why shouldn't we fall in love? Now is the time for it while we are young. Let's fall in love Let's Fall in Love was written in 1933 and has become another jazz standard over the years. Mm-hmm. You know that, you, you know your music. Because I know my jazz standards. <laughs> you do, you're a big fan. I'm a huge fan of jazz. Dizzy Gillespie, Charlie Parker, I know them all, dude. Yeah. Yeah. Ask me to name another one. Name another one. No, I've got a clue. <laughs> It's a two-page splash that steals the show here again. Sales shows Spider-Man in his usual hanging upside down from a thread pose, reading a copy of the Daily Bugle, whilst the vendor demands he pays for it. It's the detail in the streets that sell this image. This is a living, breathing, vital New York City, complete with all the iconography we're familiar with from years of movie set, though. It's a city of steaming sidewalks, bustling taxicabs and skyscrapers, vanishing up into the sky, and Sale owns it. Doesn't he? Yeah. It's an awesome, does awesome splash ever pitch. Ever rust Spidey's head? Um, I would imagine he does get a bit of, of dizziness every now and again, but 
when you jump around New York as much as he does, he's probably kind of used to it now. I guess when he's hanging upside down like that. I love the guy that he, the guy at the newsstand. Say no lending library. It's two bits for the paper. All the news I make for Jade, you on a bonehead. You think I'd get a free subscription? Whatever. Twenty five cents, or I call a cop. Which I just thought was funny. I love that people in New York give Spider-Man nothing but grief. Yeah. He's not a celebrity like the Human Torch. They don't love him. He's just, yeah, whatever. <laughs> Which is really, really good. I really did like it. I like Subtle it. Touch. Yeah. The shadowy figures coming out of the subweather. Oh, yeah. Which I thought was, was lovely. I like the magazine called Wild Things, spelt with a Z. Yeah. The, the, I, I like that the magazines are not of macaque. Yeah. You know what I mean? None of them are like subtle little nods or the names of creators or anything like that. They're all real. There's Jane Magazine, which was a real magazine, I think. Golf Fan, Kid Gaming, Laugh Optics, National Weekly, Zone Perfect and NYC. There's also a magazine called Yachts and Button World. <laughs> I would read Button World. Yeah. I bet that's a fascinating magazine, yeah. Um, again, Loeb manages to convey the early days of Gwen and Peter flirting and how much of a jerk Flash is in limited page space. And again, sales art in this classroom scene is wonderfully detailed. Gwen's character is beefed up, showing that she was also a science student like Peter and is, if not at the same level as Peter, certainly gifted. This would be adopted in the Mark Webb Amazing Spider-Man movie from 2012 where Gwen was portrayed by Emma Stone. I like that the periodic tables in the background. Yeah. I thought that was quite cool. There's no actual uh, periodic symbols on it, though. No, but it is supposed to be the periodic table. I do like that Spider-Man does pay the guy. Yeah. Thanks, you can keep the change. Keeps it in his pockets. Yeah, I did wonder where he kept that money. You don't know. No, I probably don't. And neither does the guy behind the vendor. And the shadowy figure looms forward again. Did you guess who he was? Um, I didn't actually. Did you? But I'll get to it later. Oh, I, right. I didn't exactly like the payoff. Oh, did you not? No. Alright, fair dues. Again, the advantage of hindsight gives Loeb a leg up on Lee Ramita. Loeb takes the shadowy figure and ties it into the Rhino story, two completely independent events in the original text, and even sets up the Lizard's Return as well, which, whilst not an unrelated event in the original issues, was um, set up much better here. He even has Gwen be the catalyst that gives Peter the idea, informing her character, and by bringing in Kirk Connors helps establish how Peter could whip this up so quickly. A good way of tying all these stories together without pissing all over the originals. Mm-hmm. In the originals, it's only later on when the lizard shows up that retroactively he says, the chemicals I use to help Spider-Man, ah, oh, they are changing me! <laughs> Whereas in this... Yeah. They set up when he's doing it, don't they? These are the same chemicals that change me into the lizard. Mm. I, I do like your uh, hammer horror acting. Did you? Yes. Did you like my, my hammer? It, it was very I good. would love to be in a hammer movie. Um, freed from the constraints of 60s comics, Sale gives us a two-page introduction to Murray Jane Watson, focusing on her lips and eyes before giving us the full-page treatment of one of the most iconic panels in comics. The Face It Tiger, You Just Hit the Jackpot panel. Despite its iconic status, it's quite a small moment in the original and has been completely botched when it was adapted to the screen in Spider-Man in 2002. Sales version has Mary Jane in a figure-hugging black and blue dress, a white belt that drapes itself seductively around MJ's hips, bangles, earrings and presumably go-go boots as the sun sets. 
It's another wonderful page, different to the original, but no less effective, largely due to Peter's dumbstruck reaction. In contrast to Gwen, MJ is a va-va-va-voom. Whereas Gwen is cute and attractive, MJ is curvy, with large eyes, dimples, and lovely long red hair. And yes, it's easy to see why Peter fell for Gwen, at least initially. Whoa, what did you think of the introduction of Murray Jane? I, I, I don't know. You don't know what you think of it? I, I, I don't You're just too busy staring at it. <laughs> well, hey, it's stroking that page. <laughs> it's not the page you'd be stroking, dude. <laughs> Another absolutely fantastic issue. Loeb and Sale's love of the era pouring through every panel. The fight with the rhino is suitably brutal action, again of the non-gratuitous violence variety. And again, Sale nails every page. The pace is quick, but Loeb's excellent wordsmith manner makes every word count. Continuity and nitpicks. I think we should make this a regular section of the show. We should, yeah. Continuity and nitpicks. Although, doesn't that just sort the entire show? Yeah. (laughs) Again, events from the original text have been compressed and played with to better fit the story being told here. But nothing outright contradicts the other until the end. The fight with the Rhino originally appeared in Amazing Spider-Man issue 41 from October 1966 and Amazing Spider-Man issue 43 from December 1966. And here the events are compressed into one issue. In the original, the Rhino was after astronaut John Jameson, Jonah's son, who was being pursued by foreign agents keen to learn the secrets of the spores John was exposed to on a recent spacewalk. This tale from Amazing Spider-Man issue 42 is disregarded here, presumably because in Marvel's sliding timeline this story is now only eight years in the past, around 1994 when this was published. So having the John Astronaut story would probably read a little dated. It does skip the nice little bit where Spidey is saved from the rhino by a regular cop, which is a shame. Also in the original, nothing is mentioned of the chemicals used to dissolve the rhino's hide being the same general composition as the ones that turned Kurt into the lizard until the actual lizard issue. So that's a neat piece of foreshadowing. The big change here, though, is, of course, the introduction of Murray Jane Watson. Mary Jane first appeared in Amazing Spider-Man issue 42 from November of 1966 and is very much a child of the 60s. Later writers would give her a childhood steeped in domestic abuse, but initially Murray Jane is a party girl, out for a good time with no pretense at anything remotely serious. Her introduction is before Gwen and Peter start dating in the original text, and she's a lot more girl next door than sex pot in Ramita's intro. Dressed in a black sleeveless figure-hooking top and purple low-waisted trousers, Murray Jane looks very much like she's just walked off the set of the monkeys in the original tale. She says she's a drama student, but no mention was ever made in the original of this was at ESUR elsewhere. She must transfer to Empire State University later as she's frequently hanging around at the university. Whilst I would have preferred Sale kept Mary Jane in the clothes she's wearing in the original comic book, after all, you do have to be really careful when you're playing with something as iconic as this scene, it's not a deal breaker. Especially when she does look pretty damn good. I do like how he's differentiated the two of them. Yeah. He's done a really good job of that. But you know, I am thinking this scene he, Peter's on his way to meet Gwen right mm-hmm. but instead he spends the the evening with Mary Jane mm-hmm. why does Gwen end up going for Peter after she just left her we don't know that's what happened we don't but that could have happened but that could have happened yeah so he Peter could have completely forgotten about Gwen and gone for Mary Jane instead which is what we're getting from this this sequence yeah he said he is going out to go on a date with with Gwen here whereas in the original comics that's not what he's doing he wakes up and he's hey I've got the day to myself this is brilliant and then Aunt May goes 
yeah, you have remembered Mary Jane's coming tonight. Mm. So in the original stories, it, it made more sense. Whereas here, yeah, you're absolutely right, and I hadn't considered that. He leaves. He left. stood Gwen up. Yeah. If the, the story is to be believed, I mean, Gwen's not annoyed enough later on to imply, so maybe he stayed yeah, for half Mary an Jane's hour. Yeah, but Mary not annoyed that he's been uh, spending all of his life thinking about his dead ex-girlfriend. Yeah, but that's later on. So, so Jeff Love can't write women. I think he writes very good women in this, to be okay. honest with you. I, I haven't twigged. It is entirely possible. He stays there for half an hour, and then he says, look, I've really got to go, and, Gwen, and Mary Jane's all like, yeah, all right, see ya. And uh, she just thinks he's playing hard to get. Fair enough. That's my interpretation of events, anyway. Uh, book three, entitled Anything Goes, has a cover in which Spider-Man is swinging in front of a pink shaded figure of MJ looking over her shoulder at us, the readers. As it's just a figure, there's the alluring idea that Mary Jane's naked on the cover of a Spider-Man comic book. Do you, need a, do you need a minute? <laughs> I, I like that cover, though. I'm sure you do. I wonder why. <laughs> Mary Jane is quite the hit down at the Silver Spoon Cafe, where she quickly ingratiates herself with Harry Flash and, of course, Gwen. News comes over the Expositional News Network, trademark Michael Bailey, about the lizard rampaging at Penn Station, and the news report uses one of Peter's photos. With that, he and Mary Jane make the scene. Arriving to a police cordon, MJ distracts a policeman, use your imagination, and Spider-Man engages the lizard in battle. They are split up by a subway train and a shadowy figure leads the lizard away. Spider-Man assures the lizard's wife and child, Billy and Martha Connors, that he will find him and returns to Mary Jane. He tells MJ he needs to get to the bugle, but really heads to Kurt's lab, where the lizard is. He quickly whips up a mess of lizard cure as the Connors arrive to see Kurt shaken, but normal again. Peter heads home where Harry Osborne is waiting for him, with an offer he can't refuse. With Norman in hospital, an apartment he owns sits empty in New York. Does Peter want to be his roommate? Peter is dumbfounded, but not as dumbfounded as when Harry asks for permission to ask Murray Jane out, and casually mentions that Gwen has been giving Peter the eye. When the Ned McLean got blessed and get Russian red to yes, then I suppose anything goes. When Rockefeller still can hoard enough money to let Max Gordon produce his show, anything goes. The world has gone mad today, and good bad today, and black's white today, and day's night today, and that gent today you gave a cent today once had several chateaus. When folks Still can ride in jitneys, find out Vanderbilt's and Whitney's black baby clothes. Anything goes. Anything goes was written by Cole Porter in 1934 for the musical of the same name. My generation primarily know it as the opening song from Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, albeit in um, Japanese or Chinese or whatever it is she sings it in. I thought she sang it in English. No, she doesn't. Does she not? She goes, Anything goes. She does that a bit in English. Raff. Yeah. Raff, raff, raff. Singing Klingon for all I know. Lovely touches in the dialogue from MJ's batting off Flash like a pro to mentioning that everybody's wild about Harry. A nod to the 1921 musical number. The playful dialogue extends further. Flash leering over MJ at the jukebox mentions track 34D, a non-too-subtle nod at MJ's breast size. And You've Got Me, Babe, which Flash is obviously mixing up with Sharon's Sonny Bono's I've Got You, Babe. And Mary Jane's reply, 
4F, that'll be the day. A lovely little brush-off referring to the Buddy Holly Classic, but also 4F in US military speak means registrant not acceptable. She's clever, Mary Jane, isn't she? Very bright. Very impressed. Sales art is absolutely wonderful in these opening scenes at the Silver Spoon. Instead of deliberately making everybody look like they are in 60s attire, he gives them all a timeless look. Peter is in a suit, flashing his letterman's jacket. MJ and Gwen are both in vest tops and skirts. One of the complaints about Burns Chapter 1 was that he made everybody wear 90s clothes that looks just as dated now as the 60s originals. Sale wildly goes for something that could depict the 60s or even 90210 era 90s, or even yesterday. The fact that the jukebox still has Buddy Holly or shirt on it kind of negates there's been a student hangout, but maybe it's a cafe 80s kind of place. Mm. Old-fashioned, retro, hipster kind of deal. A hipster joint. Possibly. Michael Bailey's favourite place. <laughs> I can just see Mike working here. I don't think so. Uh, lovely panel when MJ leaves with Peter. Gwen's plaintive, bye Peter is in tiny letters in a big balloon signifying her hurt and she and Harry are small in the bottom of the panel whilst the rest of it is coloured black signifying how sad Gwen feels beautiful example of words and pictures combining to sell the emotion of the piece I hope you were noticing all this I all was. the subtle art I was noticing the subtle the art yeah. the way the art is telling the, the story the way Harry looks because he just asked Peter could he go out with Mary Jane and so he's feeling yeah Whereas Peter's leaving with Murray Jane. Yeah. Very good. So both of them are kind of... Mm, mm. bit miserable there. And Very good. They're both individually... They both have their own individual art styles to show the difference. Yeah. So very good, isn't it? Yeah. Excellent piece of work. I really do like it. The next is a full-page splash page of Murray Jane riding on the back of Peter. <coughs> Peter's bike. <laughs> and she's she's got both her arms up and going, Woohoo! Is she not terrified she's going to fall off? I don't think she's terrified. And is it not law in New York State to have to wear a crash helmet? Um, it is, if the police catch you. <laughs> yeah, see, here's the thing, dude. They are riding to a crime scene. Yeah, exactly. There's going to be police they're around. They're already there. <laughs> All right, so they're not going to be following them. Yeah, yeah. I get what you're saying. Um, that Peter makes money off selling photos was just accepted in the original comics and never brought up which you'd think would be a big deal to a bunch of high school kids. Kurt Busiek addressed it head-on in an issue of Untold Tales of Spider-Man, where Peter did a show-and-tell of his own photos that he sells to the Daily Bugle, which I thought was quite an interesting way of dealing with it. Martha and Billy Connor's appearance here was set up in the last issue, where Kirk told Kirk... Kurt told Spider-Man that they were coming into town. Kurt Connors, a.k.a. the Lizard, and his family were first seen in Amazing Spider-Man issue 6, November 1963, where Kurt, attempting to regrow his arm that he lost in the war, injected himself with a reptilian serum as reptiles can regrow limbs. After a battle, Spider-Man cured him. He's an interesting character, Kurt Connors, but by and large, every appearance by the Lizard is exactly the same, and he really should have been allowed to rest after his first appearance, especially given the tragedy that befell him in later issues. Roger Stern would use Kirk Connors extensively in the 80s, but wisely resisted the temptation to bring back the lizard. Because young Billy gets eaten by the lizard, doesn't he? Yep. That's just wrong. A little bit. Shed was shit. Shed was <laughs> not very good, wasn't it? I can't remember, really. It wasn't very good at all. Do you know somebody somewhere picked that as a top ten Spider-Man story? Did they? You just want to get people like that and, you know, just slap them about the <laughs> face. No! 
omnibus slap. Yeah, you are wrong, killer vagrant with an omnibus <laughs> hitting them over the head. Um, why was our shadowy figure just hanging around in the subway to pick the lizard up? Because he predicted. Did he really? Yes. And our shadowy figure probably would be the type to hang out in shadowy places. Yeah, like subways. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but not just the subway. He's on the train tracks. It is the urban jungle of the urban predator. Yes. Okay. This this works. Alright, fair enough. Uh, The lizard battle with Spider-Man is exceptionally fun. Loeb has Spider-Man's snappy patter down cold and is again a virtual retelling of the events in the original issue. But it's the ending that works here. Harry offering Peter an apartment in the city rent-free is a dream come true for the cash-strapped Peter Parker and was important for the strip and that it got Peter out from under Aunt May's coattails. The constant threat of her heart being a plot thread that had become worn out. <laughs> but it also gets Peter into New York where the action is. Oh no, she can't see the Green Goblin. Her heart couldn't take it. Yeah, her heart's the problem here. Not Green Goblin can throw a bomb through a window. <laughs> the Green Goblin can blow her up. Uh, again, we're going to give a shout-out to Steve Buccaletto's colours, which are absolutely gorgeous throughout the entire issue. I thought this was pos- possibly the single best issue of the series so far. Yeah. Uh, the continuing narrative of Peter addressing Gwen isn't intrusive, but this is a wonderful done-in-one whilst contributing to the overall piece. The handling of the Gwen-Peter romance is so sensitively handled, it genuinely makes the reader feel like a teenager again. And I would even venture this is a superhero book you could give to a woman. And they dig it. Well, it's doing a good job at making me feel like a teenager again, I'll tell you that. that that's, that's how good it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, no, one of the things that I do like about it is, like you said, it's, uh, they're essentially individual stories as part of an entire narrative. Yeah. Which they all are, aren't they? All yeah. six of them work alone. Mm. but taken together as a whole they combine one complete story I can't imagine reading this as six single issues was a terribly gratifying reading experience though but people read The Walking Dead monthly that's true fair dude continuity and Nick picks. Yeah, that's what I like to hear by and large this issue is a retelling of the events of Amazing Spider-Man issue 44 from January 1967 and issue 45 from February 1967 the initial MJ Peter date actually took place around the rampaging rhino attack in the previous issue not the lizard issue but essentially all the elements are still in place it is retroactively established that the chemicals Kurt used to help Spider-Man are causing a relapse rather than the more organic way that Loeb handles it. But again, hindsight is twenty-twenty. In the original text, Peter is at Penn Station, purely coincidentally dropping Aunt May off for a train ride holiday, whereas in the retelling, the events have been restructured, so the lizard is already in play when Spider-Man learns about it. Interestingly, neither this nor the original makes much of the fact that Peter is indirectly responsible for Kurt's relapse, Mm. which in a character so famous for his guilt, one would have thought they couldn't resist. The original is also quite contradictory. It implies MJ happens upon the silver spoon by accident, but then has arranged to meet Peter. Gwen is a lot frostier to MJ in Amazing Spider-Man 44, but the retelling lacks Stan's rather charming, if dated, 60s hip speak, although Loeb's dialogue is funny on its own. Again, the changes are minimal and in many ways enhance the story, with Peter bringing MJ to meet the gang. Issue 44 is also the first appearance of the ubiquitous Gwen headband. 
Spider-Man is injured in the original and has to wear a sling for the next few issues, an event completely ignored in blue. And the fight between the lizard and Spider-Man, in which Spider-Man uses his brains to outthink the lizard before taking his unconscious body to Kurt's lab, is edited for expediency. Sale does his first direct homage of the series here. Page 20, panel 5 of Blue is a direct lift of page 19, panel 1 of Amazing Spider-Man 45. Except there are no, there's no speech in the balloons in the uh, Spider-Man issue. Hmm. Stan leaves you to fill them in yourself. Well, you can kind of tell because the art looks subtly different. You think? Yeah. Hmm. See, because it must have been a conscious decision to not have his arm in a sling in this story. Because it's in a sling in that panel in the original. Yeah. So they made the decision to completely remove that subplot. Uh, there's no double date shenanigans in the retelling. Stan seemed to get confused over who was dating who in the original series, with MJ and Gwen both swapping between Peter and Harry <laughs> with alarming regularity. And hilarity, hilarity indeed, <laughs> judging by Michael's reaction. Here it's clear Harry is after Murray Jane and Peter Gwen from the get-go. But the scene where Harry asks Peter to flat share is actually from Amazing Spider-Man 46, March 1967. But seeing as Loeb and Sale completely eliminate the shocker from this retelling it's moved up to here Spider-Man swinging lifestyle literally (laughs) (laughs) book 4 Autumn in New York follows the template laid out by the other covers Spidey swings in front of a couple of supporting characters in this case Harry and Flash it looks like they're coming out of an alleyway to beat him (laughs) they do have rather sinister (laughs) grins on (laughs) their face they're hitting the shadows as well they're going to mug Spider-Man yeah that's just that's just not very nice at all. It's good, but you know neither Harry nor Flash are as pretty as Gwen or MJ. Aunt May and Peter chat, and May reveals she and Anna Watson are going to be roommates, so Peter should take Harry up on his offer. Also, he shouldn't let Harry date MJ if she doesn't want him to. Peter escorts May to Anna's, where MJ is being picked up by Harry for a date, and Peter wonders how life has gotten so fast-paced. Over at Rikers Island Penitentiary, Blackie Gaxton has poisoned Adrian Toombs, a.k.a. the Vulture, thanks to the aid of the shadowy figure, and, with his aid, busted loose at the penitentiary in the laundry truck and located a spur purr of the Vulture's wings. The new, younger, hipper, sexier Vulture takes to the skies and encounters Spider-Man on his way to the housewarming party Harry is throwing for him. Taken off guide, ogling a pretty blonde and a gorgeous redhead through a window will do that to you, Spider-Man has his head handed to him and the Vulture kicks Spider-Man from his perch and he falls, bouncing off a rooftop and left in the snow for dead. Autumn in New York. The gleaming rooftops at sundown Oh, autumn in New York It lifts you up when you run down Yes, Jeruiz and Gedevoses Lunch at the Ritz will tell you that it's divine. This autumn in New York trans. Autumn in New York was written in 1932 by Vernon Drake for the musical Thumbs Up. 
Mm-hmm. So yeah, I know my musical. Your musical knowledge is coming in very handily for this show. Absolutely astonishing, astonishing, it isn't is. it? No, it's amazing. It's spectacular. It's web off. It's Marvel team. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're ripping off gags from Mark Miller now. It's time to call it a day. Um, the we're ripping off our own gags. We're ripping off our own gags. Yeah, the opening scene between May Parker and Peter is absolutely lovely. Too often May's either portrayed as an interfering old bat or, is. or somebody at death's door. Well, <laughs> because she also is. Yeah, but she can be an important and vital character when written properly. When it's a boring issue. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 May lover. Maybe, maybe I could have chosen my words better. Stan Lee knew when to feature May and when to let her fall by the wayside. And Loeb here gives the Peter May scenes a playfulness and sweetness that lesser writers can't seem to be able to pull off. May here, rather than being the controlling mother who prevents Peter from moving on, takes steps to ensure Peter makes the decision she knows is best for him, to leave to leave home and move in with Harry. But she also knows Peter will stay for her and selflessly sets it up so he can go guilt-free. Again, the opening splash page, which is just a simple shot of the Parker household, but is gorgeous, mm. with uh, the trees' leaves all turning to rust as autumn descends. Definitely looks like a New York house, that. It does, doesn't it? It's really good. And the two-page splash that follows, you would think would be really boring. Yeah. It's Peter sat eating his cornflakes and out there making a pot of tea. But the level of detail in the artwork in the kitchen, though, it's just stunning, isn't it? Mm-hmm. See, I was joking when I said it looks like a New York house. Why? Well, why would it look like it's in a forest? They live in Forest Hills. Have you ever played any of the Spider-Man games? I've played all of the Spider-Man games, haven't okay, I? Okay, Ultimate Spider-Man, you swing back and it's like, essentially, it's like our house, our street, mm. but it's in New York. Right. <laughs> so it's not our house, now a street then? Not really. Right. It's, it doesn't, it's not set in the, the, you know... So they don't live in this idyllic little place where there's lots of trees? No. Right, okay. Fair dues. All right. Uh, Peter gets a milk moustache, which adds an element of levity to the scene and sales art. It should probably go without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. It's gorgeous. Mm. I like the milk moustache scene. It was funny. Yeah. I like that he tucks his tie over his shoulder so he doesn't slop on it, mm. which I also thought Yeah, I, was... I like the scene. See, I'm not a fan of um, Aunt May. Really? I would never have guessed. I'm a fan of Peter Parker and how he interacts with Aunt May. Mm. It is. It's a wonderfully written scene. Mm. And there are some times, like in this and the new Spider-Man movie, where I prefer the Peter Parker bits to the Spider-Man bits. Yeah. I don't know. I always like Spider-Man kicking some ass. But I do like the Peter Parker scenes. Mm. But that's why the strip works so well. You actually care about Peter. Yeah. And he's not perfect, which is one of the things I always liked about him. The... um, there's a lovely, subtle moment in this story. Peter drops May off at Anna Watson's as Harry and MJ head off for a date. And Peter notes how fast Harry and MJ move, like every day is to be savoured and exploited. This is wonderfully and incredibly subtly commenting on Peter's life at the moment. How everything is changing so fast and Peter, who is traditionally a rather staid character, is rushing to keep up with it all. That Loeb can make this kind of comparison in the scene without calling attention to it is a testament to his ability as a writer. The housewarming party is a lovely little comedy bit, but steeped 
in character. MJ actually tells Gwen to go after Peter and Flash Thompson's hero worship of Spider-Man extends all the way back to the early days of the strip. He's seeing Spider-Man swing past when nobody else does, then spend the rest of the night looking out the window for him, only to look back towards Harry for the one moment Spidey does swing past. is obvious, but very funny. Mm. Uh, Mary Jane and Gwen's teasing of Flash is also funny without actually being mean-spirited. They both defend Peter to Flash, though, something Flash can't understand. Spider-Man, he just went swinging by. Look, Gwen, there's the invisible girl. Mm. I think you're right, MJ. She's in her invisible plane with her invisible dog, which is funny. I thought that was good. Lovely little comedy moment. In the original continuity, it was established in Amazing Spider-Man 259 from December 1984 that MJ knew Peter was Spider-Man and the graphic novel Parallel Lives, it was expanded upon to reveal she'd known almost from the very beginning as she saw Spider-Man leave the Parker house to track down the burglar that killed Peter's Uncle Ben. A quick read of most stories from the 70s reveals that this retcon didn't really fit into the stories, but that's the way it was. Interestingly, Loeb will have known this but chooses to ignore it. Mary Jane gives no inclination that she knows Peter is Spider-Man at this point, and in fact actively encourages him in his picture-taking, and mentions that what he does is probably very dangerous. She also makes mention when Flash moans how late Peter is to his own party, that whatever he's doing has got to be more exciting than listening to Flash whine. This doesn't outright state she does know Peter is Spider-Man, but my guess is Loeb was not a fan of that retcon and decides to play it subtly rather than address it head on. Because mm. those lines of dialogue could be read as she knows. Yeah. Or they could be read as or they could be read as flash. she's dissing Flash. Mm. So it works either way. He's not outright coming out and saying Murray Jane knows he's Spider-Man in this story. But he doesn't contradict that she knows he's Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. Which I thought was very good. Loeb doesn't get a lot of credit for being subtle. Yeah. But when he is, he is. he's very good at it. Again, the Vulture Spider-Man fight scene is well executed, but over a little too quickly. Uh, Although I would imagine most superhero fights would be in real life. The Vulture owns Spider-Man and leaves him to freeze to death. Sales art of Spidey and the Vulture fighting in the snow is gorgeous. And again, kudos to the team for concentrating on action rather than violence in what is another simply wonderful issue. I like the the girls talking and defending Peter and Flash's eyebrows just keep raising up. Mm. Absolutely fantastic. Continuity and nitpicks. I'm getting quite happy doing that. <laughs> uh, I mentioned in our celebration of Spider-Man last year that Amazing Spider-Man 48 and 49 are two of my all-time favourite issues, so Loeb and Sale are on hallowed ground here, as this issue is primarily derived from those... That this is largely a radical reworking of the original, using elements of the old tales and weaving a new but similar tale around those elements, Loeb and Sale's depiction of May and Peter's relationship is better, and May comes across in a much better light in this retelling than in the original from Amazing Spider-Man 46, where she just up and decides to move in with Anna without knowing about Peter's plans. They even mention selling the house, which they can't do as it plays into numerous later Spider-Man stories. The housewarming party in blue never actually happens in the original text, or that we saw anyway, and the party scene is actually taking its inspiration from the Silver Spoon celebration of Flash Thompson's draft from Amazing Spider-Man 47, with the second of Sale's direct homages, the shot of Gwen dancing, which, as we mentioned at the top of the show, Flash Thompson is not drafted in blue. 
The biggest change to the narrative takes place here, with the events of Amazing Spider-Man issues 47, from April 1967, being moved from before Amazing Spider-Man 48 and 49 to after, to preserve the surprise of the mystery villain. This means that Mr. Mr. Guest takes an active hand in releasing Blackie Gaxton and helps him poison the original Vulture, an unrelated event in the original text, where Toombs was injured in a prison accident, an accident arranged by Gaxton. Gaxton's escape makes more sense in the retelling with the shadowy figure helping him escape rather than it being a result of Gaxton having a trustee status in the original. The snow is a lot heavier in the original as well and Peter is suffering for a heavy cold which is why Gaxton gets the drop on him. The cold will be moved to the next issue of Blue. Sale pays more direct homage to Ramita with the panel of the truck escaping the prison from Amazing Spider-Man 48, page 5, panel 5, being directly lifted from page 11, panel 3, and Gaxton finding the Vulture's costume from page 6, panel 2, being directly lifted from page 12, panel 2. The final panel is a homage, but not a direct lift, as despite them both featuring Spider-Man lying on a rooftop outcropping, Sales is from a different angle. In this case, I think I have to come down on the side of the original, which does a better job of setting up Peter's illness and why a loser like Blackie Gaxter comes close to defeating him, although dumb luck, as here, works just as well. Loeb's retelling hits all the right beats, though, and is neither better nor worse, just different. Do you like that one? Yeah. So you're very quiet tonight. Well, I liked them all. I couldn't think of anything bad to say about them for the most part. There is nothing bad here. Yeah. There is no bad here. A marked contrast to last week. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. Book five, If I Had You, follows the same pattern as before. This time Spidey swings in front of an alluring-looking MJ and a sweet-looking Gwen. Peter rolls up at his new pad full of a cold after spending the night passed out on a freezing ledge. Harry welcomes him and Peter passes out again, this time in his warm bed. Elsewhere, the shadowy figure sneaks back into Rikers and applies the antidote to Gaxton's poison to Tombs in exchange for Tombs' killing of Spider-Man. Peter spends two days in bed fighting off the feverish cold before MJ and Gwen arrive to fight over him. Catty dialogue and chicken soup are the order of the day, but Peter spots two vultures duking it out outside his window, and rather foolishly he parcels Gwen and MJ off, pretending he needs to rest. Instead of resting, Peter takes to the skies as Spider-Man and prevents the vultures from killing each other, but causes them to drop the money Gaxter just purloined from a bank. But in the battle, one of those gargoyles that seemed quite prevalent in New York City is knocked from its perch and falls to the floor. Below, Flash Thompson picks up the money bag, but before he can be clobbered by the corners piece, Spidey saves his ass. He tells Flash to return all the money, and Flash says he will as he ponders what he's done with his life. Spider-Man heads back up and manages to take down both vultures because he's off the chart smart. As Spidey leaves, the shadowy figure finds a piece of Spider-Man's ripped costume and sniffs it. I could climb the snow-capped mountains I could sail the mighty ocean wide I could cross the burning desert If I had you by my side I could be a king dear Uncrowned, humble or poor Rich or renowned There is nothing I couldn't do 
If I had you. Would you like to smell this little girl? <laughs> Back at the apartment, Flash announces his intent to join the army, whilst outside, the shadowy figure watches. Somebody likes the jazz standards, because If I Had You, written into a 1928, is another one. Mm-hmm. You would have thought that by now, you would have noticed that they're all jazz standards. I have noticed. I'm merely pointing that out for listener identification. Ah, okay. And if they're paying attention, the lovely listeners, they'll be able to hear each of those jazz standards under the synopsis. Because I have inserted them in there. It's very good. Very answer. cleverly. Yeah. Well, how, <laughs> how amazingly clever I am. Drop them in there and turned them down. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> hey, it takes time, that dude. It does. Um, the opening is the first indication we've been given in blue that both MJ and Gwen are interested in Peter. As both show up at his bedroom, MJ with soup, Gwen to read to him. Oh. She's reading Huckleberry Finn to him, isn't she? Mm-hmm. In this one. Um, Peter blows it when the vulture shows up at his window. Ignoring the epic coincidence that of all the apartments in New York, they would happen to fight right in front of Peter's. The scene where he debates what to do is quintessentially Spider-Man. Peter, full of a cold and in a bedroom with two gorgeous, available women, ponders why he should even care that those two vultures want to kill each other. But then he remembers his Uncle Ben and the last time he did nothing and his mind is made up. To me, this is why Spider-Man is so interesting a character. Whilst he does do the right thing, he often wonders why he's bothering to do it. It's a very human reaction and it makes Peter relatable. Especially the recent, recent vulture line after Gwen and MJ leave his bedroom. I, I did like the, the subtle little bits where vultures flying past the window. Yeah, and it's of all the places in New York that he could have been. He had to be there. Uh, page 13 of the hardcover is an added page not in the original comics. Otherwise, the next two-page splash wouldn't have printed properly. Printed properly. It comes from a poster advert sale did whilst in France promoting the book. The editor removed the Eiffel Tower from the background and added some snow. I do wonder if Sale came back with a Pulitzer Prize-winning story and a one-on-one interview with a hydrogen bomb entitled What Makes Me Tick. Given how little Sale has relied on homages so far, with the exception of a few direct lifts from the stories they are adapting, it's surprising that here there are two Ditko rifts in two pages. Page 18 of Spider-Man lifting Flash to safety is an obvious nod to the cover of Amazing Fantasy 15, August 1962, by Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko, whilst page 20 has another more subtle nod to Ditko, being a recreation of Spider-Man's battle with the Vulture from page 32 of Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number 1 from 1964. Did you spot that? Uh, I, I spotted the Amazing Fantasy one, yeah. Not the Vulture one? I didn't. Oh, you've not read enough Spider-Man, dude. Probably not. <laughs> the Flash Thompson subplot is full and gives Flash some much-needed character depth. He's already been seen to be suffering a crisis of conscience throughout the entire story, wondering how come Peter is fighting off the girls whilst the Flasheroo just spends all his time being insulted. And here he looks at Spider-Man and wonders what he himself has done with his life. Flash looking up to Spider-Man has been a constant subplot from almost the very beginning, and his hero worship is directly attributable to Flash changing his life and deepening his character. 
Flash also seems self-aware enough that he doesn't want to be one of those people for whom high school were his glory days and makes a decision here that will affect the rest of his life and still has ramifications in current continuity. It's this kind of life-altering decision that did make Marvel what it was in the early days. It's hard to imagine Jimmy Olsen going in the army and ultimately losing his leg in the service of his country. (laughs) I do like the sound of that though. (laughs) Poor Jimmy! (laughs) Not only that, but he was going to die of AIDS in the 80s. Was he? Poor Jimmy Olsen! That's pretty funny. (laughs) Oh yeah, that's hysterical! (laughs) It's Jimmy Olsen, I'm allowed to laugh. (laughs) Jimmy Olsen dies of age. Michael dies of laughter. Um, I thought this was an exceptionally good issue, wrapping up some plot threads and setting up the end of the series, but in this case it does suffer in comparison to the original. I can see and understand why Loeb made the changes he did, and they do work for this telling of the story, but Spider-Man taking out two vultures in two pages just seemed rather quick to me. Still, the art is glorious, even if Sail overdid the homages this time around, as they aren't even from the era of this story. Granted, most people probably wouldn't even notice them, so that's probably just me nitpicking. Speaking of... Continuity and nitpicks. (laughs) A regular part of the show from now on, I think. Uh, The second biggest change to the narrative takes place here. In the original text, the Vulture teams up with Kraven the Hunter in Amazing Spider-Man issue 49, June 1967, to take on Spider-Man. But Spidey, no longer suffering from a cold, handles the purr of them with aplomb. Adrian Toomes recovered himself without the help of anybody else and actually freed Blackie Gangston from prison in Amazing Spider-Man issue 63 from August 1968 so he could beat on him and show him who's boss. The fight between Vultures and Spider-Man bears no resemblance to the one that took place in that issue. Again, I can see why Loeb made the change as it puts Toomes back in the Vulture suit for the end of this story instead of leaving a loose end, and it works okay. But as I said earlier, Spider-Man takes them both out far too easily, especially compared to what happened in Amazing Spider-Man 63 and 64. Flash's story, by contrast, works a lot better. In the original stories, Flash was drafted to serve in Narm, but here he makes the decision to join the army of his own violation. It makes him a far more sympathetic character, and is less dated than the original and works much better. In the original, neither MJ nor Gwen see Peter in his bedroom. Maybe that was forbidden by the comics code at that point. Instead, Harry keeps them away in case Peter's fever is contagious. A favour for which Peter never forgive Harry. (laughs) Did you like that one? I did, I did like that one, yeah. <laughs> so basically you read this and thought it was great, and then like, I got nothing. Yeah, I um, panicked a little bit. Did you? Yeah. Uh, what am I going to say? I'm sure we'll make it up in the Metal Gear Solid shows. Uh, book six, All of Me, this time features Peter Parker as Spider-Man's background buddy. We could have ended it on something. You know, we've had, a, we've had a naked Mary Jane. Let's have a naked Mary Jane and Gwen Stacy. Together in the shower. <laughs> well, that's, that's, that would be an awesome Spider-Man cover. Spider-Man swings past the watches. Spider-Man swings past the crash into a wall. Because <laughs> he's going, what? Smack. Let's take away the anime cover and give the naked a cover. It would, it would, what's his name? He would be able to check if both collar and cuffs matched. <laughs> The story for book six. The shadowy figure studies Spider-Man's battles and victories, learning from the mistakes of the past before the hunt begins. Valentine's Day. Peter receives a valentine and Harry teases him. Peter thinks it's just from Aunt May. Suddenly the guests arrive for Flash's farewell bash and Peter takes the doorman duties as Harry takes a call saying his father Norman is out of hospital and may drop by. 
Peter is disturbed by this, still fearing Norman may be faking the amnesia. Harry is surprised Norman even knows Peter. Later the party is in full swing and Flash is giving his farewell address when the shadowy figure revealed to be Craven the Hunter crashes the party. Flash tries to take on Craven, but he bats him aside and grabs Harry. Peter, making the usual excuses, ducks off and stops Craven from hurling Harry off a building. Craven thought Harry was Spider-Man from the costume piece he found and the fact that Harry had borrowed Peter's cologne. Spidey and Craven engage in fisticuffs and Spider-Man comes off worse, but Harry smashes a plant pot on Craven's head. Oh dear. Norman shows up and Spidey takes advantage of the confusion and nails Craven. But not like that. Returning home, everyone is left except Gwen, who surprises him in the bedroom. And asks if Peter will be her valentine. Will you say that? Present day, Peter is dictating into a recorder all of the proceeding and saying how Gwen's death was a catalyst for both he and MJ. Mary Jane learned to have a serious relationship because of Gwen's death, and Peter learned to love again because of Mary Jane. Why not? All of Me is another jazz standard from 1931. In case you didn't know, in that case you, you haven't standard. guessed that by now. Uh, the opening splash of Craven watching the newsreels of Spider-Man fighting the Scorpion is another homage, this time to the cover of Amazing Spider-Man issue 29 from October 1965, which is again a little odd, as none of the other shots of Spider-Man fighting are lifts from anywhere. But, you know, I'm sure there's a reason for it. Uh, the scene where Harry and Peter swap aftershave is a lovely little piece of setup without screaming, Set up! Mm-hmm. The dialogue here is also really good with the two friends ribbing each other. They've actually become quite fast friends quite quickly. In I this like one. the Osborne lady killer number five. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the dialogue is very funny. Mm. Actually, I thought it was, it's, it's always nice when you're reading a comic and the dialogue's not melodramatic. Mm-hmm. Very good. Um, Damn you for making me do this, hell. Yeah. Damn you for making me do it. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, there are some lovely little comedy beats at Flash's farewell party. Peter being swamped with coats is very funny, as is the line that Flash may be in uniform, but it doesn't give him any more brains. Uh, the monologuing in this issue is exceptional. Peter is worried about Norm and remember it as he thinks that nobody outside of soap operas gets amnesia, which is a nifty line as Spider-Man was a superior soap opera. Mm-hmm. And no more than in this story. Which, let's be honest, it's a relationship soap opera with superheroes, isn't it? Yeah. That's all it is. It's coronation webs. <laughs> uh, Peter also stops Flash from being seriously hurt, letting his body cushion the blow that Craven gives Flash, which is a lovely, subtle piece of superheroic. Mm. Did you get that? Mm-hmm. He actually dives behind Flash to protect him, whilst making it look like, oh, he's punched into me. Oh. Yeah. We know what I was talking about, Craven. Yeah, what did you think of the big reveal? Because like that is it. a great full-page splash well, event. I, I didn't like it, because it didn't feel like a great reveal. Why? I just didn't feel like there was any payoff. We've had this mysterious figure watching for the last five um, issues yes. and I just didn't feel like this paid it off well enough what that it was Craven the Hunter who had been hired by the Green Goblin to kill Spider-Man and even though Green Goblin's dead the the deal still goes through yeah because that actually flatly contradicts the original story but we'll talk about that when we get to continuous and nitpicks mm. um, I didn't mind I think because I think the first time I read this I was like where's the Craven story gone yeah because they've moved the order of the stories 
to make this big reveal work. Yeah. So it did nothing for you then? No, it didn't. Oh, that's a shame. I thought it was quite nice. I, I did like Peter's excuse for disappearing. Uh, camera, bugle, photos. Spider-Man! Yeah. Why would he say Spider-Man? Spider-Man's not even there. Because he's, he's stupidly uh, revealing to them that he's Spider-Man and must go and save them all, but they just think he's just being an idiot. Um, yeah, I suppose so. It's I did like Peter's line, if MJ or Gwen ever bought his stupid excuses in the monologue. Yeah. Because, again, this could be Loeb nodding at the MJ nose retcon. And Mary Jane's got that uh, raised eyebrow. Yeah, she's got the Spock eyebrow going on. Yeah, and she so, knows. Yeah, do you think... Maybe. Is that your reading of this? It could be. But like you said, it works either way. It does work both ways, doesn't it? I quite, that's what I liked about it. Uh, again, if I have a complaint, it's this, this entire series is building up to what amounts to a three-page fight. It's a good fight. The art is awesome. But I can't help but be disappointed by its brevity. Especially as some of the panels could have been reduced earlier in the issue to accommodate a larger fight scene. I was quite disappointed with the Spider-Man Craven battle. Mm. I have to say. Uh, Norman coming out in a cold sweat in the presence of Spider-Man was a nice touch. Yeah. Which, again, they didn't bang you over the head with. And he didn't become the Green Goblin out of it, either. And he didn't become the Green Goblin out of it, either, which I also thought was quite nice. Uh, it's the final scene in the flashback that was possibly the most interesting. The final scene, ostensibly, is Gwen and Peter in Peter's bedroom. Peter is topless, Gwen is wearing a very slinky figure-hugging dress, and the kiss she gives him is very serious. It would be very easy to read into this that this was where Gwen and Peter's relationship became physical, but that is left to the imagination, as it should be, unlike Sin's past, where we get to see on panel Gwen <laughs> being shagged by Norman Osborn. Yeah. Still not, a, still not fond of that one. Still brings me out in hives. I could have gone my entire life without seeing Harry Osborn, Harry Osborn, Norman Osborn's orgasm face. <laughs> Do you know, all the times I was reading comics, I never thought I would love to see Norman Osborn just at the moment of ejaculation. Never crossed my mind. That face he pulls. Oh, that's, that's how he gets into his green goblin. Oh, the face he pulls when he puts his green goblin. Stop, stop, stop. Um, Gwen and Peter never actually started dating in the original comics. It just kind of happened. So this was a very odd dangling plot thread. On the one hand, this would mean they became physically involved before they actually started dating. On the other, it seems pretty cut and dried to me. However, the dreadful sins past, not written until 2004, would establish Gwen and Peter didn't have a physical relationship, a purely arbitrary piece of retconning that exists purely to make that piece of <laughs> storyline work as well as it could anyway. Bit of bleeping in this one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the ending is all kinds of sweet and bittersweet. The revelation that Peter is recording these messages for Gwen and has done for years does imply he's never really let go. But the fact that he clearly says MJ taught him to love again implies he's got over it. I suppose it's up to reader interpretation, isn't mm -hmm. it? There is a conversation to be had here, I think, about Peter's mental state regarding Gwen. Yeah. Because I do wonder how much of this plays into his feelings of responsibility for what happened. Mm. And that's why you can't let it go. I thought it was good. Very, very entertaining. Absolutely stellar. Uh, the party in Amazing Spider-Man 47 takes place at the whoa, Silver Spoon. Whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa, whoa, whoa. 
continuity and nitpicks. Thank you very much. I almost oh. forgot that. The party in Amazing Spider-Man 47 takes place at the Silver Spoon Cafe, not Peter and Harry's apartment. But it does make more sense to hold it at Harry's where they don't have to pay to rent a room. The Craven storyline is streamlined considerably. In Amazing Spider-Man 47, it's established via a hastily conceived retcon that Craven was working for the Green Goblin who has paid him to kill Spider-Man, complete with a flashback that in no way fitted into continuity anywhere. Loeb eradicates this retcon by simply stating that Craven has been paid to do a job, kill Spider-Man, and the Goblin's death does not alter that. He kidnaps Harry to get the money owed to him from the Green Goblin, as he knows Norman is involved somehow, not because he thinks he's Spider-Man. Both versions are satisfying, although the Lira Mita retcon is a bit of a stretch, but Loeb Sales version works better for this story. The final scene with Gwen in Peter's room could have happened at the end of issue 47, but there's nothing that flatly contradicts it from the original text. What did you think of it? I really liked it, and I liked where it ended as well. You don't see the death of Gwen Stacy because it's not about the death. No, that's not what it's about. No, it's about him meeting Gwen. Yeah. It's about celebrating her life. And I like that it was... It should have been called Peter Parker Blue. Instead of Spider-Man Blue. I like this as a Peter Parker story, yeah. Yeah, it is a very good Peter Parker story. I like the ending, that it's just got those little... um, Four little photos from a photo booth. Mm -hmm. And then you see that he's got tapes all stacked up. That he's yeah. been doing this every year since she died. I do like that there's five of them, because in continuity she'd been dead for five years. And mm. this is the sixth issue. Yeah. And the sixth tape. And the sixth tape. Is it, yeah. Very clever. Yeah. I like that. I like I how it ends with him stopping it. Yeah. It's a lovely little story, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Final thoughts on Spider Man Blue. Spider-Man Blue is that rare comic book series that wallows in the nostalgia of the past while still feeling forward-moving. Whilst I do feel that the comic book market feeds off its own legacy more than any other entertainment medium, even movies, every once in a while a retelling of a past story comes along that fully justifies its existence by being incredibly well-written, having incredibly good art, or just being incredibly fun to read. It's rare that it's incredibly moving as well. This is all of those and more. It's fair to say Marvel have perhaps gone to the Gwen Stacy well far too much in the last decade, and it really is only in the last decade. Gwen was murdered in Amazing Spider-Man 121 in 1973, and with the exception of the Clone Saga, which ran through Amazing Spider-Man 150 in 1975, she was only really referenced in passing, normally in a particularly melancholic moment or in a flashback in a similar manner to Uncle Ben. Since the turn of the century, however, references to Gwen, and to Ben, now that I come to think about her, have become increasingly frequent, as if the writers just can't let go. This made Sin's past doubly ironic when writer Joe Straczynski accused all the comic fans who decried what he did to Gwen in that story as being unable to let the virginial Gwen rest, as if it was us who wrote that drivel and then whined when it backfired. Whilst Gwen was a loss of innocence, and for many the end of the Marvel Silver Age of comics, the constant harping on about her over the last ten years has somewhat diluted her shocking death. How can we mourn her if she won't go away? 
Here then, Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale read as the last will and testament of Gwen Stacy. Just when she and Peter started dating was something that was never covered in the original strips. And here the courtship, the early flirtations, the casual friendship that became much more through to the first kiss and again, perhaps more if you want to interpret it that way, is handled with such sensitivity and love to be a genuine work of art. This lovely testament to first love and loss is so well crafted, so marvellously constructed so perfectly paced it feels much longer and the reader wants it to be longer that it could retell a story I knew so well and still keep me engrossed shows how riveting of a read this was this should have been the last time Gwen was ever mentioned in any substantial way in a Spider-Man story we know Peter will never forget We learn what she meant to him, but also what her death did for Murray Jane. We learn that both parties have never accepted her death, but both have learned to live with it as best they can. And we learn that both have managed to carry on living. And we know that every Valentine's Day, Spider-Man leaves a single red rose on top of the Brooklyn Bridge. And that may be all we need to know. Next time! Unless you have any final thoughts. Well, I'm just thinking, now that Dr. Octopus is Spider-Man, yes. would he still leave a rose? If he has the memories of Peter Parker? Probably. Because I would imagine that that is a, an abiding memory. Although in Superior Spider-Man, maybe there hasn't been a Valentine's Day yet. Fair enough. So we just don't know. Does time move quite quickly in that? Oh, slowly in that. It moves very slowly in the Marvel Universe, doesn't it? Peter's still only about 22. Fair enough. <laughs> he was 15 in 1963. Yeah. He's now only about 22. Moves slower than The Simpsons. Moves slower than The Simpsons, yes. Um, that's it for what I think is one of Jeff Lubb and Tim Sale's finest collaborations. Certainly my favourite after Superman for All Seasons. Mm. They're my top two Lubb Sale collaborations. My favourite song, Halloween. Is it? Mm. Maybe we'll cover that one day. Maybe. You were going to cover an issue a month. No, I was going to do it in real time. Yeah. Whereas, say, if something happened on this date, we'd cover it on that date's show. Yeah. Uh, next time on an all-new episode of Hey Kids Comics, it's Marvel Now season. Four weeks dedicated to Marvel Now. Well, we should have done this after um, Avengers vs. X-Men. We should have, but this this gave us a nice little break to decide what we wanted to do and pick the issues and such. And we did cover New 52 in a similar way, so it's only fair that we give the boys across the street the same coverage, isn't it? But we didn't, because we had a bit of a gap in between. We did a New 52 show. Yeah, we did Flashpoint and then New 52, because that's what led into it. Well, we did Avengers vs. X-Men, and now we're doing Marvel <laughs> now. Fair enough. I mean, there's, we, we did gaps between Nightfall, Night's Quest, Night's End, and Prodigal. Nobody seemed to care. Because <laughs> you can always go back and listen to them sequentially yeah, yeah. if you want to, can't you? Doesn't really matter, cosmically speaking. Well then, lovely listeners, we hope you enjoyed that. Thank you very much to all those that emailed in. Please continue to do so. Facebook friends as if you so desire. And also don't forget to pop along to 2TrueFreaks.com, the new website, and have a look at the plethora of fine shows available to you there for the low, low price of bugger all. Can't say further than that, can you? We'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye.
Idle Hands to do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. And no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly this show was not turned into a lucrative revenue stream as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com and Hey Kids Comics is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, your one-stop shop for a plethora of truly fine shows. Join in the fun. We have a website where you can see the covers of the comics we've covered at www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We also have a forum, www.forumforgeeks.com. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics.